0: Hello and welcome to the Scouted Football Podcast. It is June 2020, episode 29, and this week in particular is a special one, as we welcomed back regular Premier League football after a 100-day break. Um, Spanish football also returned uh, last weekend with Ansu Fati and Také Kubo reunited as, as Barcelona travelled to Real Mallorca. While the Coppa Italia semi-finals have also taken place in the past week, with some of the Primavera players uh, taking to the field there. On our last episode, we were joined by Julian Laurent to discuss the unfulfilled potential of PSG youth products at the Parisians club and the next batch of young players who may be taking themselves elsewhere for the good of their careers. Uh, in the past couple of days, both players has discussed at length in that episode, Tangi Kwasi and Adil Oshish uh, have expressed their intent to leave Parc de Prance at the end of their contracts this summer. Uh, their next destinations we are yet to find out, but we're incredibly excited to find out where uh, and hopefully we'll be seeing them in regular action next season as their talent uh, deserves. Um, but today, I'm going to switch our focus and our fo- podcast topic is a little bit closer to home for, for those of you listening in the UK. Uh, we are joined by David Webb, who uh, most recently held the position of Head of Football Operations at Huddersfield Town. David has spent the best part of 20 years in professional football, much of his experience coming at top clubs in London, as, as well as a short stint in Sweden. Um, he's been head of Millwall's Academy, youth scouting coordinator at Crystal Palace, head of first-team recruitment at Bournemouth. Uh, he's worked alongside the likes of Mauricio Pochettino at Spurs and the Cowley brothers at, at Huddersfield most recently. Um, David, first of all, it's, it's great to have you on and, and thanks mm-hmm. for finding the time to speak to us. How are things with you and are you looking forward to, to football in the UK being back?
1: No, as you say, thanks for having us on. Uh, with football coming back is... It's quite exciting because I think a lot of us in the game have had football depression over the last 100 days or so. So it's, um, it's something to look forward to. Obviously, it's not so, it's going to be a little bit different by the fans not being there. But nevertheless, football sort of, you know, returning to the screens and obviously gives us something to watch and to the final climax of the season.
0: Yeah, certainly. You say sort of that, that footballing depression, you know, it's, it's been strange because it's usually a time of the season where it will be getting to the, the business end of, of the season where teams are, you know, going for promotion, going for qualifying for the Champions League. And it has been, it's been a very strange uh, situation. And of course, the... The, the, the cancellation of a Euro 2020, or rather the postponement mm-hmm. until next year is definitely a strange one. But yeah, it's, it's good to to have it back, albeit in, in a strange form. Um, you've, you've, as I said earlier, you've, you've spent the best part of 20 years in professional football and, and you've just left your role with Huddersfield Town in the championship. Um, a position yeah. he held for about a year uh, and I mean th- there are terms many of them bandied about uh, across football you know director of football head of football operations uh, sporting director technical director I'm sure yeah. there's lots of there's lots of overlap between these roles as well as differing responsibilities but just briefly what was what was your role about at, at Huddersfield?
1: Yeah it kind of um, underpins some of the roles you mentioned so head of football role it was sort of an operational role which still encompass sort of the roles you'd expect from a sporting director so um looking after certain departments would have been for me would have been recruitment would have come under my remit academy medical sports science uh, analysis but some of the more day-to-day operational side that probably some of the sporting directors don't have to undertake is um under my remit was stuff like the training ground management um, even stuff like in the catering catering areas, there was you know it was a whole range. It was quite an operational um, role, sort of hands on. But my first remit was to appoint uh, two managers, uh, which which we did within sort of the first, first two three weeks of my role. So that was sort of quite a challenge. And then once they were sort of bedded in and sort of got familiar with their tasks at hand, then it was my role was sort of reverted back to sort of more the hands-on day-to-day operational stuff.
0: I mean, that sounds rather varied and, and obviously very high pressure early doors having to to bring in, obviously, the Cowley brothers, as you did. Um, uh, but you've you've got quite an extensive <clears throat> background um, when it comes to academy recruitment and youth scouting. You know, I mentioned earlier the roles uh, at Crystal Palace, Spurs, Millwall, Southampton. Um, that no doubt have involved a great deal of watching young players on cold, miserable nights up and down the country. Uh, the first role in particular that I'd like to talk about uh, is your post as uh, Southampton's 15 to 21 talent identification scout. I mean, you held that for three sure. years and it was a, a time when the club was you know, going up through the league. So I can imagine that was quite a good time to be involved at the club. What was that like to, to be involved at, at that time?
1: Yeah, no, it was fantastic because I joined uh, Southampton. As you mentioned, they'd just come up from League One into the Championship. And um, there was going through sort of a period of transition. And it was it was, it was during that period where there was quite a long players, quite a few young players that um, recently come through, sort of like Walcock, Luke Shaw, Chamberlain. And there was a new batch coming through, like James Wall, prowse of um, Slattery. So it was, it was bringing... It was bringing through quite a um, like a healthy crop of young players, and Southampton at that time had a tradition where they they wanted to keep that, so they wanted to bring through players that represented the club. They wanted add an ethos where they wanted to bring through at least one or two a year from the from the academy. And my role was to uh, at that particular time was to, as you mentioned, 15s to 21s, but also overlapped with the first team a little bit. But it was to recruit nationally and internationally players that would fit the Southampton identity and philosophy and that would meant if we would have to be a little bit aggressive and maybe pay money for particular players which we did at the time I was there so players like Jack Stevens and uh, Sam Gallagher come we purchased this from from outside of our, our academy that come through and also got first team minutes Jack is still playing there now so it was always a challenge because when you're competing, at Southampton it's obviously a very attractive club to go to but obviously you're competing against quite a lot of clubs for some of the best talent so we would look for ones with not the best of the best ones we would say but ones with high value and high potential with being in our system which had the capacity to improve over a period of time
0: um, obviously, your, your role was to do with 15 to 21 primarily, but obviously, as you say there, it overlapped into the first team a little bit. Uh, and Jack Stevens is, is one of the examples I was, I was going to bring up, um, brought in from Plymouth, I believe. Um, yes. And yeah, he, I mean, he, he's one of those who obviously has had great success, you know, he's played, you know, a, a string of games for the first team still there now, but... The thing that always gets me with those sort of roles that, that you held was, you know, 15 to 21 is, is quite, it's a small age range in the grand scheme of things. But in terms of a footballing career, 15 to 21 is, is huge because at 21, you can be an established first team professional, whereas at 15, you know, you're still, you're, you're unheard of outside of your, like your, your club's academy, so to speak. Is there a difference in how you scout the 15 year olds or, or how you scouted 21 year olds? What, what was kind of your approach to that?
1: Yeah, it was kind of I mean, if they was at the age of where they was fifteen coming up to scholar, so you had that in mind and we always had them we had it in mind that if we was gonna look to identify a fifteen year old, then he would have the capacity maybe to especially if we was gonna look to say purchase money um for him so to so go beyond what we already had in our academy, then we wouldn't be looking for him to initially go into sixteen if we'd be looking looking for him to go into these sort of under 18s and sort of develop further from there because from, from that age group, because we was had a lot of players from 18s through to 21s training with the first team, we would look to sort of integrate them into that into that crop where once they had come into the club and had, had maybe six to seven months development process, then they would go on to, once they've had that, they would look to go on and maybe into join the next sort of the under-23 group. And start to develop further from there. So we we had a short, even though it was younger age groups, we still had them in mind to be potential first team players. Um, we're sort of in a three to four year plan, uh, the development. But as if it's to say, if we was going to purchase an older player, maybe seventeen, eighteen, then they would automatically go straight training with the first team. The remit and the ideology and the type of player um, that we had on. Um, that we was looking to recruit stayed the same, with just the age variation of, of where they went into once they once they come into the club.
0: Yeah, so you you were kind of looking at those players who were going to be you know playing above their age category, so to speak, um, which is understandable considering that you know Southampton were that club who were looking to push one or two uh, youth prospects into the first team every season, which in, in the grand scheme of things is quite a you know it's a big ask, but. Yes. obviously it, it is doable um what would you say some of the best lessons that you you've learned while working as as a youth scout have been
1: I, I think I think some of my best lessons which I've taken into my roles um now is when I first started I, I probably worked at nearly every single level um which is which has helped me understand youth development all the way through so starting from sort of even before Crystal Palace, I was at the old Wimbledon for a year before it uh, collapsed and went out of business. Then I took that into sort of Crystal Palace and become sort of an academy coach and sort of a scout and sort of coordinator role in there. And I worked with coaching and scouting from basically under-8s all the way through to under 16, throughout, from being at Palace to Tottenham to Millwall. So that helped me a lot understanding, especially sort of the players from. Sort of players that I was looking at at that time was from sort of the raw areas of London that give me sort of a broad understanding of sort of raw talent in its purest. So that would the once you understand that, then also you can try and start to transmit it up. And at that time, I was developing my way through doing my coaching badges. Um, and then I think around 2008 2009 to, to get to our one to my career objectives, I I realized I needed a bit more than just sort of coaching. So I undertook a a master's in sports psychology because I was fascinated with how you profile players the sort of the social analysis side as well, because while, and it probably helped me as well when I was going, when I took it through to sort of the 15s to 21s through to the first team, because when you understand players' characters, it's understanding which environments you're taking them out of, which environments they're going to go into. So, once you've identified the technical, tactical, physical qualities, you're asking yourself questions of, you know, am I going to give myself the best chance of success of this player succeeding in this environment? So, I need to know a little bit more about the player than just these sort of footballing qualities because if they fit, no doubt the talent has a good chance of progressing through. But if it was there were some characteristic traits which didn't quite marry up, or there were certain things that you felt that, um, due to your research, that wouldn't quite go through that wouldn't marry up into the environment you're taking into then then you're not going to give that player and you're not going to obviously you know the club you're working for it's, it's not going to be a successful successful purchase so i suppose learning all the way through learning about players backgrounds how they develop where they come from i've taken that all the way through to, to each age groups so i've done all the way through to the first team and i suppose that's given me you know through throughout my years and experience that's given me a little bit of an advantage to understand that development curve and seeing the potential uh, if they are going to make it through to a first team environment or not.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose that the the masters would have helped you you know hugely because as you mentioned there the the environmental considerations are obviously going to be very important because it's one thing to identify talent and a lot of people are capable of doing that you know that's something that us it's that we at scattered football you know we like to be able to identify talent but where where one step removed because it, we, we don't have the, the ability to, to, you know, to go and identify a person because as you say, it's going to matter whether, the, you know, this player is going to assimilate well into uh, the group that's already at the club. And I think that's something that when scouts are looking at players, you know, I think, or at least amateur scouts uh, like ourselves, it, perhaps the environmental consideration are, are something that could bear considerable weight, but it's simply that we don't have that, that scope to, to, to track it. Um, in terms of what you'd adhere to in, in youth and academy scouting as opposed to first-team scouting, would you say that yeah. when, when you've got a, a bigger budget and when you've got a, a more broader scope to, to track more players you know, across foreign countries, for example, rather than you know, just in, the, in those parts of London, as you said, are there, that, are there things that you'd perhaps focus on more in terms of players that you'd watch in certain areas and, and certain standards?
1: Yeah, I would say um if I sort of highlight my role at Tottenham, which again you know, that was head of elite um, identification, so pretty similar to Southampton but um but with a lot more responsibility. So that was more sort of narrowing down sort of sixteens to first team and um Tottenham's a you know a bigger club so I had a lot more resources that I could you know that I could use and we had a wider network that which we could um, scout into so especially with um, even to sort of we could go as far as a field we, if we needed to or if we had uh, recommendations or um, especially with Mauricio's expertise in the south American areas from where he was from but we, we we tend to focus on on markets that we knew that we would have a good chance in so we focused on as well as the u k sort of german france mainland and mainland Europe. So Germany, France, Holland and Belgium, you know, were quite big markets for us because especially there was a trend at that time, sort of 15, 16, 17 of especially the young, maybe the young French players that were being signed by, particularly by German clubs um, when their contracts had finished at 18. They're out They called them Asperance. And... They had the, they was looking at them as raw talent, but they also had to sort of, they was looking at them as more or less ready to go into a first team environment in the Bundesliga. And there was quite a few examples of, of that happening at the time. So we was, you know, we was looked to we was looking to sort of emulate that a little bit because we felt that um within our sort of within our within our structure at Tottenham, that Maurizio being the way he worked, he was a fantastic youth developer and he was also a teacher of people. So if we could acquire sort of one of those top talents from those areas, then um, for sort of that minimum cost bracket, which sort of the German clubs were taking to as well, that we felt that we could have a real good chance, of maybe bringing sort of bringing one through as well. So a top talent, um, but with low cost, but with real, real high potential and value. So that made that made us sort of concentrate on those areas and sort of finely tune what, of what we were looking for.
0: Yeah so you just got into to your role there at Spurs which is the one um one that you took on after you were uh, first team scout head of first team scouting at Bournemouth and obviously your role uh, as you said there was a head of elite identif- elite potential identification um which yeah. Uh, I mean to many people that is you know you that is perhaps being uh, termed dressed up as sort of head of scouting but actually that's not the case but what was sort of your what exactly did your role entail sort of day-to-day maybe going off on certain trips you know scouting missions to certain other uh, areas of Europe as you mentioned there and what was your your role?
1: Yeah the role was to identify talent that not for the Academy, but we had um, Tottenham at the time, Mauricio was a big advocate of bringing sort of top youth talent through, which I had the pleasure of working with him at Southampton a year before I moved on to Bournemouth previously. So I already had that relationship and understanding of how, how he would work. So with that, with that knowledge in mind, we set up a system that, that if we was going to tackle that type of market that we was, if we was going to look to purchase players from Europe or from further afield, that they would be more or less have the capacity to come in and handle a first-team environment at Tottenham. Not necessarily to play, but necessarily to at least be able to have the capacity to train and develop and over a period of time potentially get their chance within the first team. Now, that would be whether it was a 17-, 18-, or 19-year-old because at the time we had players from our academy sort of 16 training through to the first team, which was sort of another another element of my role was to work closely with the academy and Maurizio to sort of bridge that gap on like a filter system and an alignment system that allowed players through that process to be best equipped to go through to to train with Maurizio. So we would have a system in place it was like a link between the academy and the first team where we had a system and a process where uh, if players hit certain criteria in terms of the sort of their sort of physical, technical, tactical, but not only that, their sort of their characteristics and their social adaptation was a big key in that as well. So once we identified those that could come through, then um, Richie would sit down and have an interview with them, sort of like a sit down and sort of explain to them the demands of the first team and, it would allow them to flourish in that first team environment, but also would be be looking for certain characteristics where they wasn't overruled. So, when we sort of branched out into the scouting field and with our and when we started to research and look at players further afield, my role became I had a I had a system. We had a system in place where I had a team of sort of nine to ten scouts across UK and Europe, and then I had a very good analysis team as well. And that was sort of a process we went through like a criteria. So. Um, we had certain things that we identified within the player, but we also had five key characteristic traits that we, that we look for as well. And we had to have at least three of those for them to be sort of recommended and brought through because once the process has been identified, it then becomes a different, a different step.
0: I mean, that, to, to someone not within the industry of, of football, um, that just, I mean, that seems like a lot of pressure because if these players who are coming in and training with the first team, you know, for an esteemed manager like Mauricio Pochettino for a club like Spurs, if these players aren't up to it, and, you know, that's your recommendation that you vouch for who's underperforming. Um, it, it's quite interesting what you said there about the, the five uh, characteristic criteria. Um, I mean, if you're at liberty to say, do you, do you recall what those, sort of, those criteria points were?
1: Yeah, I can mention a couple of them, which I don't want to reveal because Tottenham still, still you know, probably still use some of that now. But um, they use, I mean, this words of work ethic and hard work. So maybe to sort of like a scout and I, they would look at um, certain things within the game of always work ethic. But the way Tottenham played was a very high transitional game. So the transition from sort of the pressing phase, from the attacking to the defensive phase. So we... So we looked at players with high athletic ability, but also had the ability to work hard and press in certain areas for their team for their team members as well, because that was that would have been a requirement for any player, whether a first team or a younger player to come through. So that would have been one of them. And also sort of young, young responsibility traits on on the pitch and off it as well, which we had to marry up. So responsibility would be responsibility for their actions in terms of if they made a mistake especially as young players, do they have the capacity just to sort of um, go over that mistake and move on and carry on playing? Or is it going to hurt them and beat him up for, um, for the rest of the game? Because to come into an elite environment, as you said, it was quite pressurised. It wasn't as pressurised as it sounds, to be fair, because Maurizio was very good at dealing with young players. So he would allow for young players' mistakes if that, if that made it. He wasn't looking for the perfect you know, for the perfect player of being that young. So he would allow mistakes, he would allow sort of them to to do the things which young players commonly commonly do. But um just the characteristic traits is something he was big on. It's something that we was all big on at Tottenham because it's something I don't think you can buy, especially in young players when they when they're starting to develop. We can never guarantee human behaviour we can never guarantee the signing of, you know, we'll be a hundred percent success. But what we would wanna do is we used to call it like tipping the odds. So to give our chance every chance of success, of so, tipping odds in our favour, to know that the work that, especially myself and my team, done was to, to um, sort of a highest, higher league standard, and we done everything we could, and and within that, and within that, that we knew that we had the best, that possibly given the player the best chance of success.
0: And um, we've mentioned um, uh, a lot about Mauricio Pochettino so far, and of, of course, you know, he's without. Doubt one of the most world's one of the world's most sought after managers at present, and that comes as a byproduct of what he achieved at Spurs. Um, I mean, you, you as you said, you worked alongside him uh, briefly at Southampton, and then for the entire period that you spent as head of elite identification at Spurs. Um, yeah, and I, I'm, your insight already on, on sort of what Mauricio Pochettino was like with young players is, is is great because essentially we like seeing managers who first of all give opportunities to young players but also trust them but also you know have that eye on okay are these players going to be responsible as you say because yeah you can buy a player who's supremely talented as you've already mentioned but you, you can't really buy that character with with the focus on on recruiting players under the, well age twenty three and under, what was sort yeah. of the message? What was the message from him there? Was he very pro twenty three and under, or was it more more the fact that you know I need a certain type of player?
1: No, I mean we had um and this is where this was very good at Tottenham. But we had a we had a really good alignment. So so. First and foremost, we'd always, you know, give our own academy players that have been developed through the academy system the first the first chance to succeed. So, if we felt that in a certain position, um, once we would, because we had sort of a grading system as well, which uh, myself, uh, head of recruitment at the time, Paul Mitchell, Maurizio, and John McDermott, the head of academy at the time, to all all have agreed to that these were the set criteria. So, if we felt that um that no one within our academy was you know coming through that we needed maybe sort of a certain striker or a certain wing or a midfielder if we felt we didn't have that type of player then there would be sort of a need to go out and acquire that player from a young age which I would always give chance to ones within in-house first because he was a big he was a big advocate of that it, irrespective of player's age as i mentioned he you had sort of 16 17 year old training with him at some points, if we felt they had capacity and the levels to do that, but um, essentially, that if players wasn't coming through that we thought was, or they started to tailor off, or we, you know, after sort of many hours of work, we felt that we were, we were going to have to go out and acquire better in those areas. Then obviously, Maurizio was fully behind that as well. So, especially with the younger ones, because the pressure was to obviously bring one to come in and train essentially, and maybe. Um, if we looked at the German model, maybe break through over a period of time, but the pressure wasn't for him to come, to come in straight away, to come in and affect the first team. It was to come in and develop through the first team. My job was for ones that had the, the potential and the capacity to develop over a period of time to, to get into his first team and become a sustainable player.
0: Top managers, I feel, are always often seen as ruthless in their decision making. And I feel like they have to be because, you know, the the odds are are so high and there's so much at stake. Um, Just from what you've said there, it, it obviously does sound very much the same with Mauricio Pochettino. Like, uh, you know, if a player who, who you, for example, you vouched for, you know, isn't performing, you know, they may be dropped back down to the 23s if they're not at that standard, um, which I suppose it is understandable. Um, devastating for them, but you know, it's it's for the benefit of the club. But um, as as more of a sort of a general point, how much contact would you have um, with Mauricio Pochettino, and and what was sort of the the working relationship like between between the pair of you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was where I was located at the training ground. My my office was probably about three or four doors down from him, sort of in the first team department. So you'd have quite regular contact. You'd see him every day. So and then but when it comes to sort of meetings and uh, decision making on players, that would be sort of as and when required. So you'd hone your first of your first portal contact. Um, you'd have daily contact with Maurizio every day because he was a very sort of sociable manager. So you'd always have, you know, chats for at breakfast at lunch. And as I said, our offices were very close. So, and you know, from where, from where my office was situated, you could watch training every single day. So you had that constant field of his presence around all the time. But when it actually come to sort of acquiring and assigning a the player, um, then, and it come to that stage where you think, okay, we are, and depending on the cost of the player, of course, as well. Then, obviously, we would, you know, mentally, we trust in the work which is being done. So then, when it comes to that stage, okay, that we're ready to present someone to him, then he would, um, we would first do it, obviously, by video clips and sort of all the work and all the stats work, and everything we've done first. Um, nine times out of ten, he would be very interested because he would know that the work was being done was to a high quality, and if he had the capacity and time. He would always, you know, sometimes depending on his schedule, he might want to watch the player live. So he would then sort of come into the final stages where maybe it was a negotiation where we was actually going to try and buy and acquire the player. And that's where we would probably um, need Maurizio to come in then.
0: um just moving on uh, you you left spurs in, in 2017 uh, and then a year later you took quite a big step and you joined um Östersunds in in Sweden um which was just after Graham Potter had had left the club uh and you know guided yeah. them to to the Europa League from from the fourth tier of Swedish football on on a more personal and, and human level what was you know what was Sweden like was, was the focus of your role different from what you'd been used to in the UK as as technical director as 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 you were
1: yeah, it was a completely different role, and um, I wanted to sort of test myself personally of uh, working abroad. So um, to get a chance to work as a technical director, sort of um, at that capacity at a club that had been, sort of as you mentioned, a year before, um, I'd done, I had some good success with Graham Potter, especially sort of in Europe as well with some of their victories against, to sort of Berlin and Arsenal and Galatasaray. You know for quite a small club in Sweden they done really well so um, I was excited to sort of take on the challenge and sort of the new culture and, and really sort of ingrained into sort of a different way and have it and have that experience on my, on my CV and get a chance to sort of um, branch out because I, I felt that was my next step to be sort of a technical director because so I've been a um, head of recruitment of first team. I've done. I've worked at top clubs. I've worked for sort of top European clubs in sort of various capacities and roles. So I felt that was my next step, and I was very grateful for them to sort of give me that opportunity to do so. It was a very different. It's a very different um, environment. So it's a little bit. Well, we we'll say it's quite a bit little, uh, more relaxed and um, working in the UK. The, the standards and demands are still high. They still expect results. They still expect to win games, but. You haven't got the. Um, you probably haven't. What I noticed, you probably haven't got the staffing and the financial capacity to do what you had to do in England. So you had to be very creative in your work. So my, my remit was was essentially sort of to work alongside the head coach, um, and support him on the day to day stuff, uh, and that would be sort of some of the first team departments sort of supporting him in terms of sort of the analysis and the conditioning. Um, but essentially was to sort of align the recruitment um, back into the back into the club and sort of negotiate players in and out at that time so that was sort of your main sort of bulk of that was your main sort of role pretty quickly and the club wanted to continue sort of um what they had done before because it was a real development club but they had the, what they wanted to do was to develop players and then trade them in one or two years because that's how clubs in Scandinavia operate they you know part, most of their financial income comes from sort of player sales so the remit there was to was to 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 acquire sort of top hungry young players that maybe have been at big clubs um, that hadn't quite made it or hadn't had the success or the opportunities to get through um, but still had sort of great potential And to bring them into that environment and give them the opportunity to play sort of first team football in Sweden, which they probably, you know, given some of the players we signed, they wasn't getting the opportunities at their respective clubs at the time.
0: Yeah, I, I get the impression that the, the football and climate in Sweden doesn't seem to be as hypersensitive to the scrutiny that, like it perhaps is in the UK. So I get where you're coming from there. Um, and you touched on the sort of the financial implications of working for a, for a smaller club like Lagostins like uh, and the the financial model of of how a club like that are going to operate in terms of taking on these young players um, who may have been released from from you know, bigger clubs or bigger academies from, from elsewhere, you know, developing them with, yeah. with some experience. And I, I, I do, I agree with that model. I think, you know, you look at the likes of uh, Nord Zealand in in Denmark, you know, they've done fantastically with, with a huge crop of, of really young players. Um, and th- that, that seems like to be, you know, the first one that, that springs to my mind that works very successfully. Um, but in terms of working with a smaller budget uh, as technical director and, you know, trying to align with the management, the type of player that they want to recruit. Was it? How did you like sort of adapt from coming from somewhere like Spurs uh, and you know Bournemouth and, and Southampton to to somewhere like Osterson's where perhaps you're you're looking for players who aren't at that same standard or at that same level? You know, is it is it different your approach?
1: Yeah, obviously you have to adapt and um, work to sort of the environment that, that that you're in but in terms of the approach um, I was quite used to the market of some of the players we was looking at because um, to give you some of the example we took um, an example like Charlie Colkit from Chelsea who was in the 23s was a player we knew and we took a player called Isaac Swanson Kumble, who was a Swedish young talent but had previously been at Chelsea and at Malmo so and a young defender called Thomas Isherwood, who was at Bradford at the time, but had previously been at Bayern Munich. Um, and, and that was kind of our remit of sort of young potential talent was to take him at those ages between sort of 17 and, and sort of 21, 22, where we knew that maybe sort of a 15, 16, they were tipped to be sort of top players, hadn't quite fulfilled that potential for various reasons. Um, found itself playing maybe sort of second team football or you know lower level football but and for us to sort of maybe sort of reignite that potential because osterson's was quite a unique environment where it allowed players to it was a development club so and there was kind of there, obviously there's pressure on them to win games but there was, it was kind of a welcome environment to say here you go here's your here's your second chance. And a chance to sort of be exposed to playing sort of some of the stadiums, you're playing, especially if you went to Malmö or or IAK Gothenburg, you had a chance to play in sort of in front of sort of thirty thirty five thousand fans. So taking them from sort of the under twenty three age groups, where you know they'd had sort of especially someone like Charlie, who we knew was a fantastic technician that he had been trained to a very high standard, previously being at Chelsea, but he'd never really been exposed to a first team environment. So all this sort of stuff was quite new to him So that was our remit on players So I had an understanding of, of the market Anyway from my times at Southampton And Tottenham of those players So you kind of had an idea of ones um, Not just in the UK or even ones across Europe that that you had Possibly could sort of fit that remit That hadn't gone on to be successful Because at Tottenham Hughes And Southampton was Requiring a sort of a level to come in and effect Here you're looking for players that you know, want that other opportunity so they would also exhibit certain characteristic traits like um, points to prove, a hunger a desire and also get their confidence back so they have a chance to showcase what maybe their potential didn't let them do elsewhere
0: you listed a few homegrown lads there, or at least UK homegrown lads. Uh, was that somewhere sort of the Premier League Two and the pre- like under eighteen Premier League? Was that somewhere that you looked to tap into, given that you, you had considerable expertise in that area, or did you, you know, did you also find yourself looking in in more obscure leagues as well?
1: Yeah, I, I think first and foremost. I kind of knew which ones would be available and which ones would fit into the remit from the UK. So we highlighted a couple of those to, to fit the remit early. But um, some of my scouting took me to countries like sort of Iceland, where um, Iceland historically have got sort of quite a good juice system, even though it's a very tiny country. But um, we sort of identified that a lot of players from Iceland have gone into Scandinavia, and some of them had even. Um, gone further afield maybe straight into holland or straight into germany from sort of the age of 16 17 and done reasonably well and um players of sort of from iceland as well that had come into the sort of our svensk and the swedish league after playing sort of a year or two in there had been bought by for quite considerable fees from sort of russian clubs german clubs italian clubs so that was kind of an area as well sort of other parts where Maybe the standard of the league was, you know, was not great at all, but we wanted you know, we wasn't looking at 25, 26 year olds. We was looking at maybe sort of 17, 16, 17, 18 year olds that were playing regular first team football. And we felt it was a market we could attack.
0: Iceland is an interesting one because I know uh, there's a handful of young lads who drop out of academies, um, particularly in the northeast. Um, that that do, you know, go over to Iceland and end up playing um, first or second division football there, which I I suppose is quite interesting to hear from your viewpoint that it's quite despite its size and despite the financial constraints there, that the the youth uh, football setup there is quite good. Just a little bit closer to home. Of course, your last role was um, was with Huddersfield Town as head of football operations, and uh, in in a recent interview with Training Ground Guru, which is a great article by the way, um, you spoke about uh, getting in touch with and, and getting the Cowley brothers from Lincoln City on board. Um, yeah. In terms of sort of in terms of player recruitment at Huddersfield, which of course you had a lot of experience in from your previous roles, how hands on was it?
1: Yeah, it was very hands on. I mean, I came especially in January. I would say was definitely more hands on, but my, my first real task was um, to find a manager so I was up to I had to sort of integrate myself pretty quickly of what Huddersfield was about because they just um, bought me out of my contract to Ostersen to start early because I wasn't due to start until September and it just gone through new ownership at the time so it had gone through sort of a whole host and a whole range of changes and I had to get myself up to speed pretty quickly but then um once sort of as mentioned, sort of Danny and Nicky came in and started to bed in to the club. And my next real focus, especially in the transfer market, was January. So I had sort of two tasks mainly, not only sort of to acquire players in, but to look at players of sort of that didn't really want to maybe be at Hudsfield anymore, that felt that they they were coming, they were purchased at Premier League, that they felt that they still had the capacity to play at high level. So Um, given Huddersfield sort of league positions at that time obviously maybe the values of the players had decreased a little bit but they still had some sort of value to the club and to sort of maybe maybe sort of look at players that were sort of more to the core values of what the owner wanted and what Huddersfield was about so Huddersfield was a was a club in the in um, Yorkshire that had real sort of like working class values. It was very community-based. It had a real affiliation with the community and fans. Um, and Danny and Nicky fit that remit, but we also wanted players to fit that remit that, that, that would buy into that. So um, actually my first sign-in was Danny Simpson. Um, just just before Danny Danny Cowley come in, he was, you know, we managed to get him sort of over the line. He had been a free transfer and it was, it was an area that we felt that we needed a little bit more solidarity and leadership. And then when it comes to January, we we wanted to go into areas where we wanted a little bit more leadership at the back as well to help some of our younger players. So we acquired uh, Richard Stearman, then we brought in Andy King. So that gave us that experience base, but then we wanted some sort of real young talent to come through as well. So sort of again, using my experience, managed to acquire someone like Emil Rowe has been fantastic for us. And he's given a real sort of spark, and that and that helps our younger players like Lewis O'Brien and and Bakun and some of the other academy players that come through. When you see a player of that quality sort of playing at Huddersfield, so and that gives and that sort of changed the dynamic at a at the dressing rooms, and it was more in line with what the what the club wanted from its players. So it was a real getting that affiliation, that working class values, that hard work. They want to see all that before they see the real football stuff. That's what the fans come to see. They want to see that real passion um, for the club from the players. So from January onwards the club even though you know the league position probably don't suggest it, the performances have definitely sort of improved.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you whether there was sort of a concerted effort to sign a good mix of young players like Emil, um, and, and also those those older uh, those older players with that vast experience to you know maybe uh, polarize is probably the wrong word, but to in, in the dressing room to have you know the players that young players can learn from and to set an example for essentially um, one that you, that you uh, you've also brought in um, that we've uh, at scouted uh, have tracked for some time um, is Chris Willock because of of course his family. Um, you know, yeah. links links to Arsenal, links to Manchester United with with Joe and, and Matty, his brothers. Um, but yeah. you know, he he obviously made a good go of things in Portugal with, with Benfica's B side and you know, how did you go about identifying him as as someone specifically who could improve the Huddersfield team?
1: Yeah, we was um the two players that went out from, from Huddersfield was in Benzer and Dick Carvey to Northern Forest and Amiens respectively. So we wanted uh we still needed sort of a young dynamic, if we, we wanted a young dynamic wingers. And and we had been monitoring Chris because he had been over at West Brom. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd, take him, they'd taken him online, but he, he, and he had played really well in the 23s, but he wasn't quite getting through to the first team. So we had that kind of relationship that um, we knew how, that West Brom wasn't going to extend beyond January. So we spoke to them, and then we spoke to Benfica, and we said that we're willing to give Chris some opportunities, knowing his background and like, as you mentioned, though, he'd been developed through sort of the England youth systems and the Arsenal respectively. And he had done quite well in Benfica's um, B team, we felt it was the right time, especially with a as well, um, and then knowing each other's game a little bit, that um, that we would give him an opportunity in the first team that he could really get a sort of a, a chance to excel and sort of sh- show what he can, sort of finally can do.
0: Yeah. And I suppose going back to your earlier point where you said, you know, perhaps the results didn't pick up as you may have intended, but in terms of performances, you know, Chris is one of those players who uh, I think, yeah, as you said, you know, who's doing very well for, for West Brom's 23s, but of course, struggling to break in ahead of, you know, the likes of Mateus Pereira, who's having a great season, um, but has obviously come to Huddersfield and done very well there. I think he scored he scored one goal, I think, um, in, in a handful of appearances. So it's good, yeah. It's yeah. good to see him sort of on the ladder now uh, in, in English football. Um, uh, having seen how well he's done uh, at Benfica and obviously with West Brom's 23s, just speaking of yeah. the, the, the ladder uh, in terms of the the level that Huddersfield are currently at, which is of course the Championship, um, Brentford yeah. uh, Brentford are obviously a very interesting side, and um, their their whole model is for, is also you know it's it's intriguing to see from the outside looking in, um, you know with a very top heavy young squad so to speak Do you think there's merit in in building a squad with it with a younger tilt to it i mean i know that the brentford model has plenty of caveats and you know it's not just a throng of young players that have been thrown together but from inside the industry what are your what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah they do have a very good model and it's it's something they've developed over a period of time as you said it's not just been thrown overnight it's taken Probably since Mark Warburton was there, sort of the final season he was there, so maybe sort of the last sort of over over the last four or five years, they've sort of really homed in on that model. And I and I would like to, they sort of done away with their academy uh, from sixteens down because I know I I know and sort of really well, and the thinking behind that was that a lot of their younger players was getting attacked by given the area they was in by bigger clubs. They thought they was going to lose their better ones anyway, so rather than be what they call first seed investors, they wanted to be late seed investors, which would mean that they would invest in talent from sort of 17, 18s above that would just sort of be a focus around their second team. Mm-hmm. But the second team would be sort of, um, and then, you know, sort of a mirror image of their first team. So it wasn't like a, sort if a player was going to come through to the second team into the first team, you know, the transference would, you know, wouldn't be, going to be as bad as, you know, sometimes transitions are from sort of those, from those groups. So that they had a clear focus of the sort of the ideology and using the stats, some of their stats model, and especially using some of their, um, some of some of their profiling, the, that's the model they wanted to go down. So it allowed, it allowed them to real focus on like a development curve, which a lot of, which, which you don't really see from the outside. So even if players were purchased between eighteen nineteen. And twenty. Sometimes it might take them six months or a year to break through to the to the first team, and um, but their second team would, you know, they'd be they'd be they'd be having games, not just games in England, but they'd be going across Europe and facing some of the best teams across Europe. So some of them players would get a fantastic experience in terms of, um, of a in development and exposure against real quality players, White's also learning the Brentford way. So it just gives them that chance to. It was a model that really worked for them, as I said, because they felt they was losing their best young talent to, to sort of the bigger clubs around them. So their focus became to sort of that late seed investment development curve, which, which they've done really well. And I think Huddersfield went for a, a similar approach, maybe not the same uh, pr- knowing what they was actually going to do, but they, they felt that they'd done away with their academy. So they wanted to be um, develop players from sort of 17 to 23. So over a period of time, they want to, Sort of bring players through their own academy system and get them through to the first team.
0: Yeah, it's not something that's that's going to to work everywhere, but that first seed, late no. seed logic makes it does make it does make a lot of sense. You know, particularly in Brentford's case because of because of their because of their geography, you know, being in West London, surrounded by uh, so many other big clubs um, that could yeah could quite conceivably you know steal their best players. Um, so yeah, I do understand Ankerson's thinking there. Um, You have obviously just left um, Huddersfield Town um, uh, at the time that we're we're recording. Uh, And in terms of your next role, I'm I'm aware you're taking on a new position uh, at another club, but you're not at liberty to discuss the particulars. Uh, But only if you're able to, and and as a little teaser, um, what was something that drew you to this new challenge?
1: Um, Yeah, I was always, I mean, with Huddersfield, it it was... when I when I was initially sort of, um, sort of approached by Huddersfield and agreed to come, it was it was sort of on a year's contract with the um, option to extend from sort of both parties. And um, I, I think I think the opportunity for me was it was such a broad range of roles, quite an operational role at Huddersfield, where it sort of went into maybe sort of twelve to thirteen sort of different areas from sort of other footballing areas. So. Um, for me I wanted a real focus what I would call sort of on a classic sporting or technical director role where it was just purely on sort of of footballing decisions, recruitment decisions, department and management decisions. I think family played a key one for me as well because it was, I'm originally sort of from the the south sort of southeast side so I've been away from sort of my family, especially being in Sweden, Huntersville from sort of the best part and Prior to that, I've been doing a lot of consulting work for some German clubs abroad. I've been away for nearly three years, so I felt that um, it would be sort of uh, maybe sort of a better better fit all round from a family perspective, from a sporting perspective and, um, you know, from a location perspective. So when I married the three together, it was kind of, you know, I took the decision that that would probably be best suit me at this current time in my career.
0: No, that's very interesting, I suppose. I think a lot of people would probably resonate with you there. Um, That is all from us for today. Um, I hope you've enjoyed an inside look into the world of recruitment, scouting and and academy setups with the former head of football operations at Huddersfield Town, David Webb, who's also held positions at Tottenham Hotspur, Southampton, AFC Bournemouth, uh, FK Ostersunds in Sweden. Um, be sure to head to sfhandbook.com if you'd like to support our work at scout football uh, volume 6 is our latest handbook and it would mean the world to us if you bought a print or digital copy uh, a- anything is appreciated hugely from us uh, we promise the content, the artwork, uh, the analysis it won't disappoint uh, but yeah finally a, a big thanks uh, to David for-, for giving up his time and, and best of luck with, with everything in-, in the future
1: oh no many thanks and uh, thank you for having me enjoyed it
0: an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, that's all from me. Uh, I've been Joe Donahue, and you've been listening to the Scarred Football Podcast. Bye for now.